Well, good morning, church, and, and happy Operation Christmas Child Day. If you haven't already realized by the uh, copious amount of red boxes up here today, today was the day that you were told was the last day that you should bring in these shoe boxes uh, filled with toys and gifts for little kids all over the world. And as I say that, I'm sure there's a couple of you in this room who now panic has set in because your box is still sitting on the kitchen table exactly where you put it so that you would not forget to bring it today. There's got to be at least one of us. Now, these boxes are intended to, to go out across the world and to spread some Christmas cheer, but they don't only spread Christmas cheer. They're also spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ to underprivileged children in places that you and I will never be able to visit. Now, if you did forget to bring your box, I would recommend see Carol Howell or maybe see Lynn Ross after service. Maybe they can see if they can help rectify your forgetfulness. Uh, the other part of the Operation Christmas Child story here at Meadowbrook this year is not just the boxes that you see in front of you, which is the boxes that our congregation collected, uh, but Meadowbrook was also a drop-off site this year for Samaritan's Purse, so individuals or other churches from our community were able to come and bring their boxes here to Meadowbrook all this past week, and then Samaritan's Purse volunteers would be able to, to come and pick up those boxes from one central location. So uh, we collected, not counting these boxes in front of you, about 250 more boxes this week that were dropped off. So let's give a round of applause for that. So in light of this being uh, Operation Christmas Child, Operation Christmas Child Day, I want to share an Operation Christmas Child story of my past uh, with you. It is a story that is seared in my brain and I cannot ever forget. Uh, I've shared it with a couple of you individually, but I have not shared it with the whole congregation yet, so this will be new for most of you. Uh, I think it was like 2019. It could have been 2018, but I think it was before you know the 2020 and the whole world fell apart. But we were still down in Florida, um, and um, the church we were serving at at the time did not participate in Operation Christmas Child, so our, our home church did not collect boxes. Uh, but our, our girls, they went to a Sunday evening program at a local small church in the town that we lived in called Awana. And if you don't know what Awana is, it's like Cubs, Christian Cub Scouts is basically the way that I would put it. But our, our older girls, they went to this program, and the leaders of the Awana program, they encouraged all of the children to uh, participate, to pack a shoebox. Our girls were, of course, very excited to do this. Um, the thing is, like many of you, week after week, when we knew we could have returned our boxes, while we were already going to that church on Sunday evening, we forgot they were always left sitting by the table right next to our front door. Now, this little church, again, they didn't have a ton of resources, but they poured a lot of what they had into doing this children's program for their community. And Linda did not want to disappoint them by not bringing back their Operation Christmas Child boxes. So one day, as I'm about to head out the door to head to work, she says, hey, honey, do you mind, on your way to work, would you go and drop these boxes off at the Awana Church? And if that's all it takes to make my wife happy, that is an easy request. It really wasn't even out of my way. It was make a left-hand turn out of the driveway instead of make a right-hand turn out of the driveway. I also had helped that I was in a very good mood that, that morning. Uh, it was November in central Florida, very different than November in Rochester Hills, Michigan. So the sun was shining. Uh, it was that warm, but that special kind of warm where you could turn the AC off in your car and actually roll your windows down, right? You could feel the warm sun against you, but the air was cool enough that it was still pleasant. I was excited. Uh, it was a day we were going to have youth group. It was going to be a good day. 
So I skipped out the house with my boxes, I put my sunglasses on, I rolled down the windows to my car, I turned my music up loud, and I headed out to return my boxes. Now, this church, again, was in a small town. This is an important detail for this story. Uh, much like downtown Rochester, everything is parallel parking on the street side, except this is a residential area, not, not commercial. So in the weekday when I pulled up in front of the church, there was no other cars parked on the side of the street where I was. I did not have to parallel park. I screeched into my parking spot. I left the car running. Okay, I left my windows down. I did turn my music off because I didn't want to be rude to anybody else that was in the neighborhood, but I grabbed my boxes and I skipped up the, the six or seven stairs or so to the front door of that church. I knocked on the door. I pulled on the handle and no one answered. I knocked a little bit louder. I'd known that there was supposed to be someone there that day, so I waited patiently and I knocked maybe every couple seconds or so until an older lady came and she opened the door. She was very pleasant. I explained to her who I was and why I was there. She explained to me that she had been the church secretary for a couple decades now. Again, we explained, uh, exchanged very small, very minute small talk, I should say. I handed her my boxes. She said, thank you. And then I turned around to skip back down the stairs and continue on with my very, very good day. And fortunately, my joy very quickly disappeared because when I turned around, what I saw devastated me. Or I should say, what I didn't see devastated me. My car was gone. And in a moment, I felt this flood of emotions and confusion and anger, like we lived in a nice little town. I mean, there's crime everywhere. I know there's crime everywhere, but, but I don't live in a type of place where I shouldn't be able to walk away from my car for, for a couple minutes and have to worry about someone taking it in broad daylight. I was never more than 30 feet away from my car, mind you. But right behind my back, my car was gone. All of these emotions flood over me. I'm angry, I'm upset, I'm confused. My, my computer's in this car, my iPad's in this car, all of my lesson plans, everything is gone. But then I see something out of the corner of my eye. It's my car, just a couple hundred feet down the road. And now my emotions change. Now what do I do? do I, did the car thieves, did they just pull away? Should I shout? Should I call someone? Should I chase them down? If I caught them, what would I even do? How many of them are there? But then as clear as day, through the rear window of my car, I could see that the driver's seat was empty. A couple of you figured out what happened. In my exuberance for the day, in my excitement for life, in my zeal to go drop off my Christmas boxes, I never put my car in park. And it was rolling away down Main Street by itself. I felt sick to my stomach. My car had not been stolen out from under my nose. All of that anger, all of a sudden it became panic. In that moment, I ran faster than I ever have in my life or I ever will run again. I grabbed the door handle to my Fiat. I jumped in and I smashed down on the brakes. And you know what I did next is real quickly, I drove out of there hoping no one saw what I had just done. And I got out of there, thank God, before any damage was caused. My initial reaction, though, when I turned around and my car was not there, my re initial reaction was to blame someone else for this tragedy that had befallen upon me, when the truth was I had no one to blame for my predicament other than myself. I am the one who shut my brain off for just a brief moment, and I almost paid very dearly for my lapse in judgment. Right? What if my car would have bumped into another parked car on the street? 
Or even worse, what if it would have crossed over the center line and caused a head-on collision? What if it would have jumped over a curb and it would have landed in someone else's front lawn? I would have had no one to point the finger at but myself. I, I could have went with the same one that Adam used in the garden. I could have said, Lord, the woman you gave me asked me to return these boxes. I should have never even been there in the first place. I don't think that would have gotten me very far. Now, my own personal strange story, it does tie into the story of Samson today. So conveniently, it brings Operation Christmas Child and Samson together. The story of Samson and how Samson's life ends is a pretty familiar one. I'm willing to bet that most of us know how Samson's life ends. So we're going to jump there real quick this morning. We're going to actually start in verse 30 of chapter 16. Uh, if you uh, have a Bible in front of you, please open it up. If not, the scripture will be right behind me on the screen. Verse 30 says, Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed all, with all his strength. And the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. This is the end of Samson. He stood chained between two pillars, being mocked by his enemies. And Samson could not look around and blame anyone else for his predicament that he found himself in. In fact, he couldn't look around at anything because by this point his eyes have been gouged out of his head, but more on that later. You see, for Samson, his greatest enemy, the enemy that would defeat him, it was not the Philistines whom he would crush. Samson's biggest enemy, the only one whom his great strength could never tame, was the man that if he could see, would have been staring back at him in the mirror. Now we'll go back to the beginning of chapter 16. I want you to see what wonderful decisions Samson made so that his life would end chained up in the temple to a foreign god. Go back to verses 1 through 5 for me of the same chapter, chapter 16. This is a little bit of a long exchange, but stay with me. It says, Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, let us wait till the light of morning and then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight. And at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. After this... He loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him, and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So at this point, 20 years, give or take, has gone by since we first met Samson. And then we saw Samson desiring that first Philistine girl. Right Over 20 years since we've seen Samson go and demand that his parents go and get this girl for him. But what we learn here in chapter 16 is that the foolishness of Samson's youth, it was not just a phase that he would grow out of. Right? Two decades later, Samson is still being snared by his demand to, to have whatever it is that looks desirable to his eyes given to him and given to him immediately. 
We see that Samson travels to Gaza. Gaza was far from his home. It was deep in Philistine territory. And when he gets there, it says that he sees a prostitute. Typical Samson behavior. Samson doesn't see this as a trap or a snare. Samson sees this as an opportunity. Samson sees this as a great idea for him to spend the night with her. But even in the midst of this sin, what we just read said God still does not remove his great strength from him. We're told that Samson lifts the city gates straight up out of the ground, posts and all, and he carries them. And and if you know the geography of these places that we're talking about, that he carried them for 40 miles uphill. Coincidentally, it's the same uh, amount of distance my father had to walk to get to school when he was a little kid. I don't know if anybody else's father had that problem. Uphill, 40 miles each way every day. So we, we can read between the lines here. And obviously understand that something supernatural is still happening in Samson's life. We see that even finding himself in what is a despicable situation, that God is still with Samson. Even as Samson is actively showing no respect for God's ways, no respect or understanding of his rules or or his laws, God still delivers Samson in this moment from his enemies. Enemies, again, that were told they knew that Samson was already there. It says that they were on guard at the same gate that he removed. They were waiting till the sunrise so that they could go, so they could get him. They wanted to end Samson's story right here before we would ever even get to verse 4, before we would ever even meet Delilah. But by some miracle, Samson strolls right past the guards, removes the massive swinging double gates from the city wall, and just walks away. This does not happen if it is not God's will. If it was not God's will that the judge whom he called before birth, that he called from conception, would live to see another day. And then Samson, it says, leaves Gaza. And when we're not told how much time elapses in this period between verses 3 and 4, But what we see is that another very similar story pops up because we see that another woman catches Samson's eye. Are you noticing a pattern in Samson's life yet? And this girl, again, based on where it says that she is from, it's presumed that she is yet another Philistine lover for Samson. She's approached by the lords of her people. Earlier in the book of Judges, it tells us there's five lords for the Philistines or over the Philistines, and then these five lords, they come and they offer her a bribe. Samson's been betrayed before, hasn't he, by a woman? But this Delilah now, she's not coerced by threat. This Delilah is tempted with a bribe, and it's a big bribe at that. The five lords of the Philistines says they each offered her 1,100 pieces of silver, 5,500 pieces in total, if she would betray Samson. And and this is absolutely life-changing money for Delilah. Uh, If you want to understand how much silver she was being offered, in comparison, just in the weight of it, this is three times the weight of silver as the amount of gold that Gideon took after he killed the kings of the Midianites when he made that golden ephod. This was enough money for Delilah that she would be able to live out the rest of her days as a very, very wealthy woman. She would not have a care. She would not have a need in the world. It was Samson's first Philistine wife. She was the one who found herself stuck between this rock and a hard place, who chose to betray Samson. But Delilah is different. Delilah makes a business decision. 
And with the business decision that she makes, we begin what is one of the most frustrating exchanges in Scripture. As we watch throughout the rest of this chapter, that Samson will prove again that he is a man with more brawn than brain. Through the rest of this chapter, we are going to see that Samson's egotistical spirit truly knows no limits. Excited to try to cash her big reward, Delilah comes to her new bay, and, and she says this in, in Judges 16.6. It says, Delilah says to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound, that one could subdue you. <clears throat> now, we've already accomplished that Samson is not the brightest bulb. But even Samson recognizes here, this is a very dangerous leading question. So he gives her a very bizarre and obviously fake answer. Verse 7, he says to her, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak like any other man. Uh, bowstrings typically are made from the sinews or from the tendons of slaughtered animals. Samson's insistence that these bowstrings would be fresh, that they would be undried, that they would be fresh out of an animal, means once again, Samson is coming in, into contact with a corpse. Right? It means once again, he is being flippant and he is trivializing his Nazarite vow. Samson's pride is so much, it means he does not care that he just invited this woman to bind him up. Samson assumes that all is always going to be well, and he assumes this because it always has before. Every single time God has always shown up, God has always bailed the big guy out of whatever trouble he found himself in. From the moment of conception forward, God kept letting Samson win. If you try to put yourself in Samson's sandals, he, he's now approaching, again, maybe 40 years old. Samson's no young, dumb kid. He, he's lived a full adult life. But he looks back at the stories of his life, and he begins to say, well, you know, when that lion attacked, I handled it. I, I tore it apart as if it was a young goat. When, when my Philistine wife betrayed me and I lost my bet, I went out and I killed 30 men and, and I took the loot from them. When they gave my wife to, to someone else, I burnt down their fields. I brought economic disaster upon an entire country. When they killed my wife, well, you know, I went and I killed a thousand men. When I got caught with that prostitute, no big deal. I picked the city gates up and I walked home. So after all of these life experiences, he must be thinking, what are the chances now that this Philistine woman is going to be the one that actually will bring me down? See, Samson's thinking at this point that he can say whatever he wants, he can do whatever he wants, and he is always going to be able to fall back upon his great strength to bail himself out. And again, with this first lie, even today, that we see that he tells Delilah, he is again, he's proven to be right. Because as we've seen happen before, the sinews that he is bound with, they just melt off of his wrist. And the trap that had been set for him, it has been foiled. Now, at this point, I'd like to gladly admit, maybe something most men won't hear today, but most men have done some pretty dumb things in their life to impress a pretty girl. I'm not going to list all of those things that I have done for you today because my wife is pretty pretty, which means my list would be pretty, pretty long. But I can certainly admit that when I look back, 
I can say that there were times when a beautiful girl or a beautiful woman made me set logic aside for a moment and maybe just act like one of those Looney Tunes characters, you know, where they see the pretty girl and they go, Bauga, Bauga. <laughs> no brain function, right? None at all. But what Samson does next, right, even in my most love-struck state, would make me look as wise as Solomon. Verses 10 and 11, it says, Delilah says to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. I think Samson's first lie, he told Delilah, was a bit silly, honestly, and, and maybe he was even surprised that Delilah fell for it. So instead of getting out of this toxic situation while he still can, he decides that his next lie needs to be a little bit more believable. But again, he's hedging his bets because you remember the men of Judah, they already tried to bind Samson with new ropes. And on that day, he ended up killing a thousand men. So still, as he is lying, he is still very confident that he is going to be safe, that, that whatever she is planning, it's still not going to be successful. So Samson pushes his luck one more time. He spins the wheel again and he allows a trap to be set. Whether he is being prideful in this moment, whether he is blinded by love or blinded by lust or whether he is just an idiot, there is no defense for what he is doing. She ties him up again and she tests him. She yells, Samson, Samson, you know, the bad guys are here. Get up. And the great strength that God had gifted Samson, it did not fail him again on this day. He tears through the ropes just as he had before. And at this point, Delilah must be getting desperate. You must think that she's seeing this, this big fat payday. This is like a lottery winnings to her, and she's seeing it float right out the window. She is no closer now today than she was to knowing Samson's secrets when her scheme had first begun. But her temptation, the, the, this, this desire she has for riches, she decides she's going to push her luck again as well. She's going to persist forward in verse 13. says, Delilah says to Samson, until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web, this is like a loom they would use for creating fabric, and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Guess what happens when Samson wakes up? He simply wakes up, he pulls the pin out of his hair, and he is perfectly capable of defending himself still. This woman, Delilah, she would not possibly try again, would she? And Samson, he would not be dumb enough to stick around one more time. Another round of this can't be in his future, can it? After waking up three previous nights to find that your lover has attempted to restrain you and set you up in a trap, there is no way that you would stick around. You would go out, and if you had the ability, you'd pick up the gates to this city, too, and you'd carry that one off. But Samson's pride makes him so comfortable in this dangerous situation. It's Samson's pride that keeps him from seeing the real threat that is looming, pun intended. Delilah comes to him one more time. Verses 15 through 17. She says to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. 
And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak like any other man. Again, this Delilah sounds like she learned a lot of lessons from Samson's first wife. She seems just as thoroughly trained in the art of nagging. She accuses Samson of no longer loving her. And after days and days of nagging, and after days and days of crying, it says Samson's soul is vexed to death, meaning he literally, he could not take it anymore. But instead of leaving, he folds like a card table. Samson is finally broken, and he bears his soul to this wicked, wicked woman. This is a woman, mind you, that he should have never in the first place allowed himself to be joined to. In Samson's weakness in this moment, he literally, he casts his pearls in front of swine. He confesses, or I'm saying his confession, I'm sorry, is also fascinating because in his confession, first and foremost, he shows us as the reader that he actually is aware of his, his theological or his spiritual calling. Because up to this point, based upon how flippantly Samson disobeys God and his law and his rule, how often Samson does whatever it is that is right in his eyes at the moment, it would be very easy to assume that perhaps Samson has long forgotten about his calling. This calling that he was given to be set apart, a calling to be a Nazarite, a judge, a redeemer. This calling to be the one who would again begin and start this process of freeing God's people from a foreign oppressor. Like everything else in Samson's life, this vow, it's something for him to just fool around with. It's something that he can just kind of use whenever he pleases, something that, that if it's convenient for him and it will bring him happiness, then he's happy to obey. Right? This is the same way he behaves with his great strength. It's the same way he behaves with the women in his life. Everything about Samson reeks of arrogance. This right here is the real tragedy of chapter 16. You see, the real tragedy of this chapter is not when Samson is bound, it's not when his enemies descend upon him and they beat him, they seize him, and they gouge out his eyes. The real tragedy is not when he is placed in metal shackles or forced to grind grain in a prison back in Gaza. The real tragedy is that he bears his soul to this pagan woman in such an intimate way. And this marks Samson now becoming intimate with the enemy, again, to a whole new level. He's no longer just sinning against his body with these women. He is now sinning against his soul. How does he fall asleep that night feeling? Knowing that after all of the impulsive things he has done, that he might just have finally stepped over the line. God, though, we see is still moving in Samson's story. Because Samson falls into such a deep sleep that he's undisturbed as his head is being shaved. Verse 20 is so sad. Uh, verse, verse 20, Samson made his own bed. Samson sleeps in his own bed and he awakes in his own, own bed not knowing truthfully that he has hit his rock bottom. Verse 20 says, She said, being Delilah, 
The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Samson woke up assuming that he was going to break the ropes that bound him, as he had done many, many times before. Samson took for granted and he assumed that his great strength would still be there, that he would be able to rescue himself that day. But Samson was unaware that God had left him. For Samson's entire life, he has been able to come and go whenever he wanted to and wherever he wanted to. No one has ever been able to tell Samson what to do until this very moment. Being abandoned by God is the worst fate that we could ever imagine. And in an instant, he learns that he wasted all of those God-given gifts and talents that were bestowed upon him. The amount of irony that exists here overnight. He, he goes from a man whose every action was determined by his own sight. right? If it looked good to Samson, he went and he got it for himself. To now he's a man whose eyes are gouged out and is left blinded. His sight can never cause Samson to stumble again. Overnight, the man who spent his life insulting and humiliating others is now the object of, other, of humiliation, I should say. Overnight, this, this man who possessed the highest conceivable calling, this man who was divinely commissioned as an agent of deliverance for Israel, is now in the lowest possible position. He's grinding flour in prison for his enemies. Samson is left without his strength, without his sight, without his freedom, and without his dignity, and he is also without his God. But what could have been? Uh, again, if there was someone here that did not know how this story ended today, you do now. We've already read verse 30 that tells us of Samson's demise. And as we read of how Samson's life ends, there is temptation to let the lesson of Samson's life be that, that even after he lived a life that was full of debauchery, full of sin and selfishness, that when Samson cried out to God and asked for forgiveness, that God's spirit rushed back in him and he was mighty and victorious even in death. And we can see ourselves in that because that, that means that we can take solace knowing that no matter what we have done or where we have been, that it's not too late for us either. Right? That if we will just repent and turn back to God, that he is faithful to hear us, that he will forgive us, and that he will send his spirit on us. And if you hear the story of Samson and you take this glass half full type interpretation to the scripture, I'm not going to tell you that you're wrong. Right? The sentiment that you are pronouncing is absolutely true. God's grace and forgiveness are for all that would call upon the name of Jesus. Right? You should hear that today because that is true. And I know that, that I've been taught that glass half full lesson around the life of Samson before as well. But I have to question if that's really what we see happening here. Uh, read verse 28 with me. That's when Samson calls upon the Lord. Samson calls upon the Lord and says, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I, might, I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. So yes, yeah, Samson calls out to God. He absolutely does. And, and in the Hebrew, it's, it's actually really important that he doesn't just cry out to God. He calls God by name here, which is something we don't see Samson do. He cries out specifically to Yahweh. 
He doesn't use this generic moniker of God like all the pagan people around him did. He cries out to Yahweh, the God of his people, the God of his ancestors. But does Samson cry out and say, Yahweh, restore my strength so that these evil people will see who the one true God is? What Samson says is, restore it so I may be avenged. You see, Samson's final plea is still one of a man who is me-centered. He's a man who's looking for vengeance for what he sees has been taken from him. In this final moment, there's nothing Samson says that tells us that he is interested in God's glory. The specific words he says is, remember me, strengthen me, let me have my revenge. It's always been about Samson for his entire life. And even here at the end, there's no mention of the nation of people whom he is supposed to be delivering. There's no mention of the God whose Samson's actions have besmirched the name of at every turn. Back to my car. When I turned around and I saw that my car was gone, my first reaction was to assume that someone had wronged me. When truthfully that day, I was my own worst enemy. I created a situation that could have had disastrous results. And based off the final statements of Samson's life, I don't think he looked around, again figuratively of course because he had no eyes, but I don't think he looked around and he saw that the situation that he found himself in was of his own accord. He did the same thing that I did and he blamed everyone else. He wanted the last action of his life to be avenging what was taken from him. See, this is the story of Samson for these three chapters, and I'm sorry if I am repeating myself, but if, if God thought it was important enough to dedicate three chapters to, then it's okay if I repeat myself for a week or two. The lesson that I am left with, or the application for us from Samson's story, is that I serve an amazingly powerful God who is completely in control of the story that he is writing. And it was that amazingly powerful God that elected Samson to be this, this, this temporary kind of main character in his story. Someone that God chose to use to advance the plot of the story to where he needed to get it to. But, but Samson's divine election did not remove his ability to exercise his free will. And, and no matter how hard Samson seemingly tried to throw God's story off the rails, he still ended up doing exactly what was needed of him. He began to call the people out from the oppression of the Philistines. Samson was not the one who would finish this job by any stretch of the imagination, but in spite of all of his stupid and naive life decisions, God's story was still told, and it was told in a way that we still remember and recall it today. But the question is, did Samson have to walk this path? Did he have to live a life that over his 40 or so years of life that would be a disappointment to God? No, he did not. Samson could have sought the Lord. He could have learned from his mistakes. He could have made offering. He could have sought forgiveness. He could have done it the right way. And even if he did all of those things, and even if he did everything the right way, perhaps his story still would have ended with him chained up in that temple. You know, there's this temple to this false god. But perhaps Samson could have gotten there differently. And again, I repeat myself from the last couple weeks, but, but again, we have a choice to make as well. 
We need to understand that God's story is going to advance to where he wants it to get to with or without us. But in his goodness, he has extended an invitation to us. He's even already told us how the story is going to end. Right, I promise there's not going to be some last-minute twist. We are not all of a sudden going to discover a 23rd chapter of Revelation that is going to surprise us. Now, perhaps we're going to realize that maybe we misunderstood some of the details of how the end of the story is going to go down, but there should be no breaking news for anyone in this room to, to find out that Christ will return, that Christ will claim his church, that Satan will be defeated, and that he will be cast into hell. All of us in this room have been given the free will to decide what part we want to play in that story. We all get to decide if we will lay our pride aside and if we will join the winning team. We get to decide if we are going to go out into the world and share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We get to decide if we're going to be remembered among the saints who ran their race well, or if we will let our pride be our undoing as it was for Samson. Right, will we be left watching God's story unfold and realizing that we did not RSVP to the invitation that was graciously offered? Now, I talked a lot to people here who already believe that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior, so I'm going to end here speaking to any of us today that maybe have not made that decision yet. As we probably should just about every week. You see, we do know how the story is going to end. We do believe that Jesus Christ died, that he resurrected on the third day, and that he ascended back to heaven where he sits at the right hand of God the Father. We believe that there's going to be a day when Jesus is going to return. And again, there's lots of details that we can uh, split hairs upon as we debate how that will happen and when that will happen and all of the specifics, but what you need to know is that at the end of time, some people will be spending an eternity in heaven with God, with the Father, in a place where there is no more tears and no more pain and no more suffering, where there is joy and the, the, the biggest thing on our plate every day that we have to worry about is worshiping a living God. Those who are going to have that be the end of the story are going to be those who believe that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be, that he, he is the Son of God, that he paid a price upon a cross, a price he did not have to pay, that his body was broken, he was beaten, and he was killed because he loved you. Because he wanted you to have the opportunity to RSVP yes. That he wanted you to have the opportunity to accept the free gift of salvation. And if you have not done that, whether you're in this room today, whether you're watching at home, whether you listen to this on a podcast 12 months from now, you need to understand that that offer is for you regardless of where you have been, what you have done, what family you came from, your ethnicity, that none of that matters. That you have to proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. You must confess that you are a sinner, that you are incapable of achieving this salvation upon your, uh, your own accord. Take stock of your life. Repent for the sinfulness that is there. Turn away from it and be baptized. Be immersed in water, go under the water, be born again, raised back up as a new creation in Christ. And when you do this, you will be assured of what awaits for you in eternity. Let's pray.